going to dig into some uh, very tricky territory today. I'm not going to lie. I am rarely apprehensive about delivering a message I'm prepared. Uh, I told Gio last night to pray extra hard for me because I was just feeling scared, honestly, just feeling just a little fear, which I know I'm always preaching against fear and stuff, but here I am um, feeling a little tentative about this message because, um, well, I want you to like me. <laughs> and um, I, I don't want you to think I'm weird, but we're getting into some weird territory today. This series is called This Is War, and we're talking about the uh, ongoing cosmic struggle between good and evil, light and darkness, angels and demons that's going on all around us according to Scripture. Would y'all just pause with me for a, a moment of prayer? God, I pray right now that every heart in this room and uh, those online that are watching as well, that our hearts would be softened and our minds and ears would be opened to be receptive to teaching that might be a little different than what we expected to hear this morning, might be a little different from what we normally talk about, but um, according to your word um, is the truth about our reality and uh, the struggles that we face and how they often are not uh, due to the circumstances we chalk them up to. There's something more going on just than what we can see and touch and taste and buy. God, I pray right now that we would be receptive to the point of being transformed by the truth we hear today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, y'all have study guides. You can get those out now. Those are hopefully uh, helpful to you as we navigate today's teaching. We're gonna be digging into Matthew chapter eight. Uh, That passage uh, is in that study guide. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can just follow along in there. Or if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and get it ready. Open up to Matthew 8. We'll get there in, uh, in just a minute. Bible apps are okay, too. Nobody's going to give you a sneer if you pull out your phone and, and follow along on your phone. That's fine. But don't be Instagramming during the sermon. That's all I'm saying. All right. Um, so uh, this is part two of this series. And what we're really aiming for here, the impetus for this whole conversation is to give a little attention um, to what the Bible presents as reality. And normally, um, we like to distinguish between physical reality and spiritual reality. Now, most all of us believe in physical reality, and most of us also believe in spiritual reality, but we keep those things neatly compartmentalized from one another. But the picture the Bible paints about reality is these two kinds of reality, physical and spiritual, sort of interlacing and overlapping and happening simultaneously in the same space-time continuum. And, uh, and it's all around us happening, uh, all around us influencing us in uh, one direction or the other. And we have a part to play in that ongoing struggle. And the picture the Bible paints is uh, as though that is actually what's most real. And the physical world can speak to that deeper, truer reality, but oftentimes we, we flip the script and we think the spiritual world is kind of an afterthought and the physical world is the real thing. But what really matters most is what's happening on this spiritual level. And this battle that is supposedly happening all around us and all around you and even within you every day is taking place between two camps. 
Uh, so there is on the one side um, God and his heavenly host, the Bible calls it, and you've often heard that phrase, heavenly host. Uh, it's an unfortunate translation that basically the King James got wrong and nobody ever went to the trouble of changing it. I think there was just too many songs written about heavenly hosts by the time they did other translations and so they were like, just leave it. Even though it doesn't mean what it says, you know, it doesn't mean host. Heavenly host sounds like a heaven, like, welcome wagon or something like a hospitality table that's not what this is the heavenly host is a military term host anytime you read host in the bible um, you should think army that's exactly what the word means it's army so god and his heavenly army which consists of different kinds of heavenly spirit beings anything from angels which don't have wings by the way and are messengers of god to things like cherubim and seraphim which do have wings and sort of act as god's entourage in the heavenly realm. They are his inner circle, his protectors. They're worshiping him and they're protecting him or guarding the throne as well. And so that's on the one side of this battle. And on the other side of the battle, the Bible describes are the evil spirit forces, right? So there's Satan and demons. The Bible calls them demons. And, uh, and they're struggling against uh, God and his, and his host or his army. Now, uh, the Bible, frustratingly, doesn't give us a ton of backstory on Satan and his demons and the origin of evil. I love, like, books and movies about superheroes and villains and stuff, and they always give you the backstory, like the origin story, where it went wrong for the villain, like how they became who they became. And we don't have that whole picture in the Bible. I wish that we did. Um, now, Christians have tried to fill in some of the blanks and, and have tried to sort of craft the story, and, and I'm okay with the story that's been crafted of, uh, you know, that, that Satan was once an angel in, in God's army and he rebelled against God, and there seems to be enough evidence in Scripture to support that story, that he was cast out of heaven for his rebellion and all that, but it's just not as crystal clear as maybe you have heard that it is. But one thing that is clear is that Satan and the devil uh, and the demons are very real beings. They're not symbols of something else. They can't be explained away. And, uh, and Jesus' mission is to eradicate them. Jesus came to earth to deal with evil on the spiritual level especially. And uh, you know, we're part of the plan too, but we're part of the plan insofar as we participate with Jesus in the eradication of evil. That's really what he came to do. Now, um, all that to say, you cannot take Jesus and the Bible seriously without also taking Satan and demons seriously. So you can leave it all behind and say, well, that's all a bunch of medieval kind of hogwash, like I can't buy into any of that, and that's perfectly acceptable. Um, but if you accept Jesus and you wanna follow Jesus, you gotta figure out what you're gonna do with the demons. You gotta figure out what you're gonna say to your friends about evil and how you're gonna prepare yourself for the fight. Because I, I think that most of us honestly struggle to conceive of spiritual evil. If we're honest, we, we can conceive of spiritual good, we can talk about God, but we really struggle to talk about Satan in secular circles especially 
right? So uh, we'll talk about him here, and I can say the word Satan and nobody laughs, but if you go to work and say Satan, drop Satan in a conversation, you're probably gonna get a chuckle because Satan has been reduced to a joke in our culture. From Saturday Night Live to South Park and everywhere else, Satan is a joke. He's a cartoonish, red tights-wearing buffoon, and he's not really a threat, And so we can talk seriously about God. Rarely do we talk seriously about Satan. If you want further evidence, I'll I'll give you a little experiment to try. All right, anybody anybody going to the rodeo today? See, George Strait, several people. We are all very jealous of you. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks for bragging. Um, (laughs) Go to see George Strait today at the rodeo. Here, do this. If you're at the rodeo with your friends to see George Strait, Um, After he finishes singing, let's say, it's a love without end, amen. And at the end of it's a love without end, amen, if uh, you lean to your friends and you say, you guys, I really feel God in this place right now. They'll probably all kind of accept that and, and maybe even reciprocate it. Yeah, we feel him too, you know, that kind of thing. But if after, let's say, all my exes live in Texas, you lean over to your friends and you go, guys, I really feel Satan in this place right now. <laughs> You're not going to get the same reaction, are you? <laughs> you might not get invited back next year <laughs> because we're not as comfortable talking about Satan and these forces of darkness or um, evil because I really think most of us struggle to believe in him at all and conceive of him as a real thing, a real person um, that is our enemy. And I think the reason why is because we are all so comfortable and rich, we are, by the world's standards, by any standard really, we've got it made, like we hit the jackpot. And in my experience, the richer and more comfortable and more privileged and powerful people get, the less likely they are to talk about Satan, why, I don't know. Maybe it's because if, if you kinda like the status quo, then why bring up an enemy? What is there to change? We're kinda good with things the way they are. This is working out for us. And so there's less of a sense of urgency to fight back against darkness if your life seems pretty okay, right? And so I think the same is true with churches. Like the more uppity a church is, the less likely you are to hear about Satan if you grow up in that church. Or even in denominations, um, the, the, the wealthier the demographic of a denomination, the less likely you are to learn about these spiritual forces of evil at work. I mean, I remember in my own uh, seminary, my Methodist seminary being taught very clearly, uh, man, I wish the bishop wasn't here for this part, uh, being taught very clearly, <laughs> That, uh, that, the, that, that Jesus didn't really believe in demons. He was just speaking the language of the day. He didn't really cast out demons. He was dealing with mental illness, which is just disturbing on so many levels now. I bought it then, believe me. I used to say this stuff. But it's... If, if you've ever struggled with mental illness and you hear the church say, well, those weren't really demons, it's mental illness. And the church putting mental illness on par with demonic possession, uh, you know, 
I just think it's a stretch, especially when you see the stuff that some of these demon-possessed people were doing in Bible times. It doesn't add up. It doesn't add up, right? That's not to say that the enemy can't use our mental illnesses against us. Of course he can. Of course he does. But those things are not necessarily on par with one another. But even more importantly is the fact that I have learned over time to be very wary of snobby sophisticates who cling to their power by attempting to smart splain away spiritual truths. Actually, he wasn't casting out demons. Actually, he was healing a man's schizophrenia. <laughs> uh, no, I think no. I think actually the real Jesus is so scary to you because he couldn't care less about the titles and tenure you spent your life chasing, that you'd rather fabricate a false Jesus, a domesticated Jesus, than worship a real one, the real one, and give your life to him, because that would mean surrender and reprioritizing everything. But I think we all can fall prey to that sort of thing. And I've wondered this week, as I've prepared this teaching, I've wondered if maybe that's exactly what the enemy's after, you know, the enemy is pretty good at what he does, but there are so few Satanists in the world. Have you ever noticed how few Satanists there are? He's had a lot of time to build up the Satanic temples, and there's only two or three of them in the whole state of Texas, and they're all in Austin, of course. And <laughs> <laughs> but maybe, maybe that's not what he's about. Maybe his mission isn't to make all of us into Satanists. Maybe all he wants is for us to become so apathetic and agnostic and ambivalent about everything that we never really accomplish anything because we don't care. You ever been attacked that way before? Ever been tempted that way? I am all the time. My generation grew up watching Adam Sandler, for goodness sake. Like, those movies were all about apathy and, and, you know, being ambivalent about realities of the world. And so I think we all struggle in, in that way. Um, and, and I think that might be exactly what the enemy is up to. In his master work on demons and stuff, C.S. Lewis wrote uh, screw tape letters, and he imagined a couple of demons um, communicating with each other, a senior demon coaching a younger demon on how to coax a man's soul into hell forever. And he wrote to Wormwood, the younger demon, Screwtape wrote, it is funny how mortals always picture us as putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. So maybe this agnostic, ambivalent apathy is what he is after most. Today's a scripture from Matthew chapter eight is about two men who were the story says, possessed by demons. We're gonna talk about that in a second. Before we do, I just gotta tell you what happened right before the events in today's passage. So Jesus and his disciples are in a boat and they're going across the Sea of Galilee when a violent storm blows through and the disciples freak out. They totally lose it. Jesus, on the other hand, fast asleep. And I love this image because I've got to imagine that one of the few things that might have surprised Jesus when he put skin on was the power and beauty of a good nap. 
Like, Jesus, that's one thing he never did before. You know, like he knew, he knew humans, but he didn't know what it was like to sleep. And here he is in a boat in a storm, sleeping away. And I think he's so deep in sleep that he's in that REM cycle. Because whenever the disciples wake him up, he's cranky. Like he's mad. Anybody ever wake you up when you're deep in sleep? He's mad. And he's, he snaps at him, and then he realizes what's going on. And uh, he stands up, and he speaks to the winds and the waves. And they listen. And this is important. Because when he does this, the disciples are simultaneously relieved that the storm is over and terrified that this friend of theirs speaks to the weather. And it listens. Because according to Hebrew scriptures, and time and time again, in several Psalms and the book of Job and elsewhere, the only one who can speak to the weather and have it obey him is God. And so it's in that moment that the disciples begin, some of them begin to realize for the first time that this man they're following is more than a teacher. He's more than just a good rabbi. He is God among them. And then this happens next. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, Matthew chapter 8, verse 28. I'll just read the first verse and we'll talk. All right, so uh, when Jesus arrived at the other side in the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. And they were so violent that no one could pass that way. I want to stop there just because I don't want to just gloss over demon-possessed men. Uh, what does that mean? What does that look like? Does it happen today? Now, when we think of someone being demon-possessed, what immediately comes to mind? What visual? The Exorcist, right? Most of us have seen The Exorcist or that Emily Rose movie or there's like a bunch of them out there now. But the symptoms are all the same. They've got the eyes rolling back in their heads and their heads are spinning around on their necks and they're like crawling up staircases backward on all fours and, you know, crawling up the walls and stuff. And those are <laughs> extreme cases. You don't see a lot of that uh, in, the, in the real world and real life. However, I will say... My research on this sermon series has been more than a little disturbing. And the number of extreme sorts of cases that are still being reported and not um, in, just in other, you know, developing nations or whatever where the kind of mysticism is more common, but, but here in the States as well, and these stories are being, like, backed up by medical professionals and, and law enforcement, and some crazy stuff is happening. But I will say, I think those are the rarer cases, Right? But other things do happen that I would be remiss if I didn't share with you a little bit. Gio and I have served various kinds of churches and ministries for over 20 years together now. And I, we have seen some stuff. And you rarely will ever hear us talk about it. I don't preach about it. I try not to even think about it. We rarely talk about it, she and I. Because it's easier to just pretend like we forgot it. Because it's scary. It's, it's strange. It's unexplainable, some of the stuff. And because our kids are with us in today's service, I'm not going to go into too much detail on the scariest examples. But, and some of these examples will resonate with you because you've seen it too and you didn't know what to do with it. Like the moment when a, a wonderful, gentle father of two... Uh, you see him and his countenance changes, like his presence is heavy all of a sudden. And he's, he's like a different color almost, a different shade of red or something, and, and his eyes look different and his voice sounds different, and he gets violent. He's full of rage. 
And there's nothing you can point to that kind of triggered it or made it necessary in any possible way. And when he comes to again, he can barely even remember the things that he did to the people that he loves. It was as if he was under some kind of possession. And that doesn't remove his accountability there, by the way. He's still accountable for his actions. But there's something unexplainable there that that we can't just try to reason ourselves out of. Or a young girl, she's actually in her late 20s. She's young to me. (laughs) Uh, So a young woman in her 20s who was uh, just a great person, just kind of on her way in life, upwardly mobile. She had a career. She had a boyfriend. She had parents that loved her. Like no like signs or symptoms of trouble. But every time this young woman looked at herself in a mirror, she heard a voice from outside her head, she said. It wasn't an internal voice. It was a voice from outside saying the same things. You're fat. You're a pig. Every time. And over time, she started to believe it. And this girl who was like 115 pounds soaking wet, you know, she developed an eating disorder that nearly took her life. And she chalked it up to something spiritual, and it's hard to deny. Or when you think about what happened this week in New Zealand, a man takes 50 lives as they're praying. People of all ages. And he goes to the trouble of broadcasting it live on Facebook. And what's fascinating is you see the news coverage of an event like that, and our secular societies have lost all ability to articulate reality. We don't have the language anymore because we've stopped conceiving of spiritual reality that all we can say is, oh, he's been radicalized or white nationalists or, you know, uh, just violence is on the rise and guns and stuff and nobody calls it what it is, evil, evil. And when you look at the world from a strictly secular point of view, you lose the ability to logically call something evil. And if you can't identify evil, then how are you supposed to fight it? How are you supposed to identify it? How are you supposed to to protect people you love against it? You know? That's exactly what it was. It was was evil. I could tell you about a man who who asked me to pray with him about 30 yards from where I'm standing now, and this wasn't that long ago, and it was in the parking lot, and he asked me to pray with him, and I agreed, even though some things had happened, and I had some reservations about praying with him, but I took him by the hands, and we started to pray, and the moment I began to pray, he began to convulse, is the only word I have, just kind of convulse, and every time I spoke the name of Jesus, it was like sending an electric shock through his body, it was palpable, he just shook, and whenever I said, amen, to close out the prayer, he said, You need to watch your back. They're coming for you. And they're coming for the story. Anybody freaked out yet? (laughs) Y'all want me to stop? I'll stop. All right. I I could go on. But listen, um, I feel a little bit like a dad right now. I don't normally take that sort of role on in this church. (laughs) 
feel a little bit like a dad because I want you to know what's really going on. This stuff is not uncommon in the life and ministry. So I want you to know what's going on, but I also don't want you to wet the bed. <laughs> and so I'm trying to decide how much to share. Um, so I'll stop there. Uh, <laughs> but I want you to know, not to scare you. This is not like he's going to get you, that kind of sermon. That's not what this is. I want you to know so you'll be prepared. So you'll be prepared. Remember last week we said this is not about being afraid. This is about being aware. Just be aware because uh, this enemy that Jesus spoke of and spoke to is real and we should live um, as such. All right, so um, the, the, Bible makes, the Bible makes that clear. And the Bible makes clear what this enemy wants from us or for us. This enemy wants death, if I could sum it up. He wants death. He wants to take your life from you and that doesn't, doesn't mean he wants to kill you or anything like that. I'm not even sure, you know, I don't think he has that power, that authority to like take your life from you, but he wants you to be lifeless. This enemy that's kind of working against you will use whatever he can to steal from you the glimmer of hope in your eye, to steal from you the life in your face, to steal from you, you know, the, the, the joy of your salvation, to steal from you, you know, and, and make you into a robot, to make you into somebody that just goes through the motions. You get up in the morning, you go to the gym, you go to work, you uh, go to the bar. You get up in the morning, you go to the gym, you go to the work, you go to the bar. You know, kind of an uh, on-repeat um, routine. If he can make you into a lifeless robot, he will. Some of you know exactly what that's like. But death is his goal, the death of your spirit. Um, Hebrews 2.14 says, Satan has the power of death. And I think what that means is death is his go-to weapon against us. This is what he wants, um, uh, is to rob us of the abundant life Jesus has for us, which is why it's not surprising that these two men that Jesus uh, is confronted by in Matthew 8 are hanging out where? Where are they hanging out? Among the tombs, in the cemetery, because wherever death is, demons find a home. They're right at home there, um, biblically speaking. And so uh, I think it's important that we keep that in mind. Let's keep going. Matthew 8, 29. These are the, the men talking now. So, what do you want with us, son of God? And these are, the, I think, the demons speaking through the men. And this is the first time that Jesus has been identified as the son of God or the son of the most high. And it's interesting that demons are the first ones to identify him as such. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? So uh, this is a, an important little verse here because uh, the demons know two things about Jesus. They know his identity the son of God, and they know his purpose, that he's come to destroy them. And they're just wondering if this is the time or not, right? Are they gonna, is he gonna destroy them now or later? So they know his identity and they know his purpose. Now, they don't know everything that, about Jesus. They don't know, for example, that Jesus is about to use their favorite thing against them. Jesus is about to take death and beat him over the head with it. That Jesus is about to die on the cross and as soon as hell erupts in laughter and celebration, he's going to pull the rug out from under them. They don't know the plan. They know his purpose. They don't know the plan yet. But um, I think this matters to us because if they knew Jesus' identity and they knew Jesus' purpose, then your enemy probably knows your identity and your purpose as well. 
And if, as we learned last week in Matthew 4, the enemy knew Jesus' perceived weaknesses, like when he was hungry, what did the enemy give him? Bread, like tempted him with bread, like tempted him with power, tempted him with preemption of God's plan, like, like yeah, those are the things that he used against Jesus because he knew where the weaknesses might be and you need to be aware that if this really is a war that we're talking about, and this really is an enemy that knows your name and your purpose, he probably also knows your blind spots. So my question to you is, do you? Do you know your blind spots? Do you know your weaknesses? This is just common sense a little bit, like, of course, if you have an enemy, they're going to try and leverage your weakness against you. And so if your struggle is lust, of course, the moment you're about to fulfill your purpose, he's gonna throw some porn or some images in front of you to tempt you. Of course, if your struggle is pride, of course, the moment you fulfill your destiny, he's gonna show you how rich your friends got. Of course, the moment if you struggle with you know, greed, the moment you begin to break free of that bondage and to invest your whole life into the gospel of Jesus, they're gonna tempt you to keep more for yourself. Of course, of course that's how it works. Um, you just need to know, don't be afraid, be aware. Just know uh, what those weaknesses are so that you're not caught off guard when they're leveraged against you. If you know the attack is coming, then yeah, it's nothing to weather that storm. You'll be ready, all right. Um, so uh, uh, I think it's important to know you do have an identity. Your identity is as a Christian, redeemed by the blood of Jesus, a child of God, a son or a daughter of God, and your purpose is to invest your whole life to spread the gospel of Jesus throughout your household, your spheres of influence, and the world. All right. Uh, let's finish this passage, and I'll uh, wrap it up. Matthew 8, verses 30 to 34. Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding, and the demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, go. And so they came out and went into the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. And Peter came to sue Jesus. I'm just kidding. So those tending the pigs ran off went into the town and reported all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. All right, so <laughs> let's just own the weirdness of this passage for a second. I know it's, it's strange, and I usually need to know that this passage falls on our ears differently than it would have fallen on the ears of first-century Jews that were following Jesus, all right? So the first obvious difference is how we look at Pigs and pork, right? For us, we think of pigs, we think what? The answer has been the same at every service this morning. Bacon, of course. We think of bacon, we think of ham, we think of Charlotte's Web, we think of babe pig in the city. These are all good things, right? We think of pigs with some pretty positive associations. And that was not the case for Jesus' followers and his culture and even for Jesus himself in some ways because the Bible, the Hebrew Bible makes it very clear that pigs are among the filthiest, ungodliest creatures on God's green earth. And I've got to say, uh, I love bacon as much as the next guy, but have you ever read up 
on what too much pork does to the human body? Like, really? You can eat that stuff, but eat it in moderation. If you don't, that pig is going to kill you. Like, like it's going to clog your arteries and stop your heart, and you'll die prematurely. That's what happens. And pigs are indeed filthy creatures, if you've ever been around them for any length of time. Um, those of you going to the rodeo today, stop by and see a pig before you go see George Strait. You'll see what I mean. Uh, mobsters used to dump the dead bodies of guys they offed in the pig pens, and the pigs would just consume the whole thing and digest the bodies and do away with them. Isn't that something? Yeah, enjoy your bacon. All right, so. <laughs> so, lots of turkey bacon going to be eaten this week. All right. Uh, <laughs> So if you can get past uh, Jesus' apparent um, cruelty toward these pigs, you'll see the point of this story is really that for God, it is entirely unacceptable for evil to take up residence inside a human being made in God's image. It's untenable. God will not sit idly by while his people are possessed by something or someone that will do them harm. And Jesus is saying by casting these demons into this herd of pigs that a herd of filthy creatures tumbling off a cliff, plummeting to their death is exactly where evil belongs. And it's a precursor to what's coming for evil on the whole. Because remember, Jesus did not come to play nice. Jesus came to pick a fight. He came to wage war, which is why it is beyond me how incredibly boring church has become 99% of the time. Look, how many of y'all have been bored in church before? How many of y'all are bored at church right now? <laughs> the, <laughs> the cameraman's raising his hand. Hey, come on. Uh, he's a volunteer, I have to be nice. <laughs> so why? Why has church become a place where we get dressed up and we tell the kids to be quiet, don't show anyone how messed up we are? You know, <laughs> why? Why is it so cookie cutter? It's because whenever you start domesticating Jesus and the devil, you end up with a bunch of domesticated Christians who just go to get the gold star and make some connections for work purposes and, you know, win some points with the missus or whatever. And it just pains me, especially it pains me to see young men bored at church because no one's ever told them what they're really here for. You're not here to learn how to be a good boy. Do that at school or at home. You're here to learn how to fight. And not with weapons, and not with violence. That's what the world does. That's what the enemy does. We're here to learn how to fight with the light, and with love, and with aggressive grace, and forgiveness, and mercy. But it's a fight nonetheless. Jesus came to fight, and he didn't show up for the fight with just a shield, like in a defensive position. Oftentimes it feels like the church just has a shield, like, oh my gosh, the world is so bad. Oh no. Jesus showed up with a sword. He came to storm the gates of hell. And some of you have never been told that that's what we're doing here. Preparing for battle. A battle in which so much is at stake. 
your own life, of course, but the lives of those you love, you're called to lead them from the foxhole to the battlefield and prepare them so that they know what they're up against. In our small groups, what is that other than a battalion of people who share their weaknesses with each other so that they can be shored up and prepared for battle? Of course, that's what this is, but we boil it down to something else, something so boring. Just join our church, we'll give you a certificate, and you know, you'll be real proud of yourself, and just keep tithing, and all that stuff. And that's not what this is about. This is about a very real struggle. And to follow Jesus is to face evil with confidence. First John chapter four, verse four, says that the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. So whatever your weakness is, whatever your blind spots, whatever your track record, however you've failed in the past, when you've received Jesus and he gives you your orders to march in his army, whenever he is in you, you never fear because he's greater than the one in the world, greater than whatever you're going to face, and so you walk with confidence as you fight death with life. And you fight darkness with hope, and you fight evil with grace. You are a child of God, that's your identity. You were redeemed by Jesus, bought with a price, you are on the path to restoration and sanctification by his Holy Spirit. You are called to a high and holy purpose to fight a good fight, to live with fierce intention, to look evil in the eye and be unafraid, and to lead others into this fight as well. You are called to invest everything you have for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ and those in your life knowing this truth. Would you pray with me? Jesus, help us to be unafraid, aware, aware always, but unafraid, because you are greater, greater than the one who is in the world standing against us. Help us, God, to live with courage and conviction and to see ourselves as enlisted women and enlisted men in this struggle that you call us to. Help us take up our crosses and follow you with all that we have. In Jesus' name, amen.